1998, the Houston Rockets were trying to build an all-star NBA basketball team. Since I am avoiding talking about football today, I'm going to just talk a little bit about basketball, if that's okay. Uh, They were trying to build a team, and they had some really great players on the team. They had Charles Barkley, they had Akeem Olajuwon, and they had uh, Clyde Drexler. They had a really strong three-person, these are major, major guys, excellent basketball players. But in that year, Clyde Drexler was about to retire. And so they needed to find somebody who would fill his shoes and help take this team to the championship. They really wanted that ring. They really wanted to get that championship ring. So they reached out to this rising star, this rising star basketball player, one of the greatest forwards in the, in the history of the game, a guy named, uh, uh, guy, guy named Scotty Pittman. And Scotty Pippen came on board with the team. And if you watch the interviews from that era, like the early part of, of that era, man, Charles Barkley and, and, and Elijah Wan and Scottie Pippen, I mean, they're just getting along. Everything is just going well. They're talking, they're laughing, they're joking with each other. And there's just a camaraderie there. And, and they're winning basketball games. I mean, they're really, I think they go on a nine-game winning streak, and they're really just hard-charging and really doing, doing great. But at some point in the season, something happened. And, and we don't know exactly what happened. There are competing uh, stories about what happened. But there started to be a little bit of internal conflict on the team, mainly between Scottie Pippen and Charles Barkley. So it might have been ego, might have been pride, might have been a misunderstanding, might have been some miscommunication. But you start to pick up that there's just a little bit of, you know, uh, backhanded comments and a little bit of body language and a little bit of a little bit of dysfunction started happening in the team. I don't know if you've ever been in, a, in an environment where there's a little bit of dysfunction, but what happens is if there's internal dysfunction, eventually the results get dysfunctional as well. And this is what started happening on this team. There started to be some dysfunction on the team, and it started to show up in the results. So by the time they get to the playoffs, they're playing against the Los Angeles Lakers in the first round of the playoffs, and the Lakers just blew them out, knocked them out of the tournament, beat them three games to one. They had no chance. They were done for the year. And Charles Barkley and Scottie Pippen were kind of going after each other. So Barkley felt like Pippen wasn't wasn't committed. Pippen felt like Barkley hadn't worked hard enough. It wasn't dedicated enough. And Charles Barkley says something about Pippen in public, like, man, he's not really committed to us because Pippen said, hey, I want off the team. He was, there, he was making $67 million for a five-year contract, but he said, nah, you know what? I don't even want to be on this team anymore. I want to go play with the Oregon Trailblazers. I want out of here. So Barkley is mad. And then they asked Pippen in an interview, they said, don't you think, do you owe Charles Barkley an apology? You came and you're going to develop this team and you know, now you're taking off. Listen to, what, listen to what Pippen says. This is kind of an interesting quote. He says, I wouldn't give Charles Barkley an apology at gunpoint. He said, he can never expect a, an apology from me. If anything, he owes me an apology for coming to play with his sorry fat behind is the word that he didn't use, but is the word that I will use uh, today. In other words, dysfunction had arisen so greatly in this organization that by the end of the year, these guys who were just all-star players, they had every opportunity to win. They just couldn't play with each other. Now, none of us, well, most of us probably will not play in the NBA. 
I very un- it's very unlikely. God can do miracles and do all sorts of things. It's very unlikely that I'll ever play in the NBA. But all of us know what it's like to be in an environment, either a relationship or a family or a job or a school environment or a team where there's dysfunction. All of us know what that is like. All of us have experienced that. And the problem with dysfunction is that when we're in a dysfunctional environment, this is what happens. It drains our enthusiasm. It limits our potential. And it undermines the, res- the results of the organization that's dysfunctional. So if you've ever been a part of a dysfunctional family or in a dysfunctional relationship or a dysfunctional job atmosphere, you just know it just undermines everything. It just saps your strength. It it doesn't allow you to flourish. And then the results that you're trying to achieve with that organization are undermined. And when, when things get really dysfunctional, then it's just you can't maintain it, right? So relationships will just eventually fall apart. Marriages will dissolve. And, and, and companies will go under. And uh, uh, schools will shut their doors. I mean, if you get to a point where it's super, super dysfunctional, it just can't work anymore. So the question that we have for ourselves is, how do we build families? How do we build relationships? How do we build work environments? How do we build school environments? How do we build teams? How do we build churches? How do we build environments that are not only not dysfunctional, but that are built to last, that are built to flourish, that are built to grow, that are built to allow us to to experience our potential, to really fulfill our potential, and to have the kinds of results that that organization or that family or that team is, is, is meant to have? How do we do that? Now, I know that some of you today are probably thinking, man, if you knew how dysfunctional my job was, you would not even be talking to me about this because there's nothing I can do about it. I got a crazy boss. I got a, you know, who undermines me at every turn. And I've got this crazy life. I, I can't do anything about it. Or you might be saying, hey, if you actually knew my family, my family is so dysfunctional and there's nothing I can do. These people won't change and, you know. Or, or, you know, you've been in a, in a, you know, you're on a team or you're in a school environment, in a classroom environment where the professor's like crazy and you're just like, this is just bad. There's nothing I can do about it. The truth is we can never change anybody else's behavior. We just can't do it. I mean, we can try. We can moan and cry and fight and kick and buck and squirm. We're never going to change anybody else. But what we can do is by the power of the Holy Spirit, transform, alter some of the ways that we interact, alter some of our own perspectives and attitudes. And what happens is that not only transforms us, but it begins to spill out into the environments in which we live and work and our families and our relationships. It begins to become transformative in the world around us. In fact, in one of Jesus's greatest moments, one of his best analogies at the end of one of his most famous sermons, actually his most famous sermon, this is what he says. And I love this analogy. He said, anybody who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it didn't fall because it had been founded on the rock. There was a sure foundation for this house. He said, everybody who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. Here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, your, ha- your life is the house. 
Your relationships, everything that your life is a part of, your friendships, your relationships, your job environment, your church, your school, the teams you're on, the organizations you're involved, this is your house. Build your house on the solid foundation, foundational principles of God's truth because when you do, you can experience all kinds of storms, all kinds of adversity, all kinds of difficulties, all kinds of challenges that can come your way and your house will stand strong. But if you build your house on ideas and priorities and principles that are not grounded in God's truth, eventually dysfunction will take over and it will fall apart and great will be the fall of it. He's saying build your house on the rock. And so for the next several weeks, what we're going to do is, you may want to take notes today because I'm going I'm to do sort of a summary of the whole series, and then we'll go week by week and drill down on each point. But what we're going to do today is we're going to look at some of the core foundational principles from God's Word that will help us to build better families, to build better relationships, to build better churches, to build better schools, to build better jobs, whatever you're involved with, applying God's principles and God's truth to those things will make them strong. And so today we're simply titling this series, Build Better Blank, and you just fill in the blank uh, for your own life. And for many of us, that's going to be a lot of these things. We all need to build better families. We all need to build better friendships. We all need to build better relationships. We all need to build better churches. We all need to build better schools and better companies and better organizations. And when we apply God's principles to those things, we can withstand every imaginable kind of wind, every kind of imaginable storm, everything that might come our way, and we will grow strong and not fall. So I want to start today just by opening up with one of the core principles that's foundational at the very, very base of every kind of relationship, whether it's a job, whether it's a romantic relationship, a friendship, school relationship, whatever it is. Every relationship has to be built on the foundational principle of God's truth of mutual trust. Mutual trust forms the foundational bedrock of every kind of relationship. When I went to Starbucks today and got a cup of coffee, I had to trust that the barista didn't spit in my coffee. I had to trust that it wasn't Dunkin' Donuts coffee. When I paid her, that I had to trust that it was what it was advertised to be. There's an element of trust that has to happen in every relationship. But the problem is trust is difficult to build, especially in deep relationships, right? Especially when you're gonna go deep with somebody. Trust is hard to build. So the question is, how do I begin to build trust? How do I begin to forge the foundational bedrock of trust with somebody else, whether that's a, you know, a friendship or a marriage relationship? How do I begin to do that? When uh, Rebecca and I first got together and started dating, uh, one of the biggest hurdles that every romantic relationship faces at some point is, how much can I trust this other person? How much do I reveal about my life to this person? Because the I don't mean to give you a spoiler alert, but everybody's got baggage, okay? We all have baggage to a different degree, but when Rebecca and I got together, we both had some baggage. We had some relational baggage, some emotional baggage. We had some financial baggage. We had some, some baggage to share with one another, and the thing is, you don't want to share your baggage with somebody else because if you do, they might not like you, right? And, and, and so you don't want to share it, but if you don't share it, Here's the problem. They might like you, but they might, not like, they might not like you. 
because they don't know you, because you haven't shared the parts of your life to them with them that you need to share in order for them to actually like you. And so there comes a point where you've got a risk. You've got to take a risk in the relationship. And you've got to go, okay, I'm going to start to reveal a little bit of myself to this person in a way that they can either reject me or accept me. There's a risk. And so you start with something small. When you're revealing your baggage, you start off with just, just the fanny pack. You just show them a little bit, something small, like a little bit. This is just a little thing. See, there's nothing. And then they go, okay, I still accept you after seeing your fanny pack. I, I, I still accept you after that, right? So then, so then you give them, you know, a little, the backpack. And then you open up with the duffel bag. And if they haven't rejected you, at that point, you get the roller luggage out. And you show them that and, the, and then the garment bag. And if you're really still tracking and things are going, man, you, you break out the trunk. And you show them the trunk. Because sometimes there's some junk in that trunk. So you got you to, gotta, but if you don't, they don't get to know you, right? If you want to have a real relationship, if you want to have a real, powerful, growing, dynamic, vibrant relationship, there's a point at which you got to get real. You've got to be authentic with that other person. You've got to open up your heart and expose the parts of your life that you don't necessarily want to expose because if you don't take that risk, you cannot grow in that relationship and the relationship will dissolve. It will fall apart. Jesus' brother James, talking to the church, put it like this. He said, confess your faults to each other and pray for each other. Why? So that you might be healed. This is what happens when people get real with each other. Relationships heal. Dynamics between people heal. Your heart becomes whole because you have opened your heart to somebody else. Now, if you're in a work environment, I mean, this is a you know, you've got to use wisdom about this. You don't just come and reveal all your stuff to your boss. Hey, boss, you know, you know that's called oversharing. So don't be that guy, okay? Just, but, but there does have to be a point in every relationship, even if it's a more surface relationship, where you're willing to open up and you're willing to confess and you're willing, especially if you're leading a team, if, you're a, if, you're a, if you have employees or you've got students or you've got kids or you're leading some, some kind of environment, you've got to be willing to go, hey, you know what? Hey, sometimes I'm wrong. Sometimes I don't get it right. And, you know, if you're ever in an environment where somebody does that, do you know how, do you know how, how liberating that is? Because everybody knows it anyway, right? But, but to be able to say, hey, you know, with your kids, I'll give you that example. Like, it is so empowering to your kid, little parenting side, for you to say, if you mess up, hey, you know what, I, I kind of blew it there, son, I overstated that. I, I, I shouldn't have said that, and I apologize. You know what that does for that kid? Immediately he goes, okay, okay I, can, I can trust this guy. I can trust this person. You know, If you say to your husband or to your wife or to your friend, hey, you know what? I think I overreacted, and I apologize. You, you got to end it there. You can't say I apologize. But really it was your fault, and I should. And you can't. You got to stop. You got to know when to, when to hold them and when to fold them. So you know, sometimes you got to stop. But, it, but when you do that, when you start to say, hey, look, this is, this is who I am, uh, and this is how I made a mistake, and you start to build trust. Now, is there risk involved? Yes. That's the downside. Downside is you might get rejected. Somebody might go, oh, ugh, I don't like that, and they might reject you. But if you don't do that, you can never flourish. You can never move forward. Nothing can grow if, the, if you don't establish this base foundation of trust with the other person through 
a, a, a sort of humble, open, candid, transparent confession about who you are, being authentic with who you are. Now, here's what happens when we're authentic with one another and we establish a base of trust with one another in a church or a school or a relationship or whatever. When you begin to establish that base of trust, then you can have constructive conflict with the other person or with the other people in that environment. Now, you might go, that doesn't sound very appealing. I'm, I'm, I'm not a conflict person. I don't really enjoy conflict. So if trust leads to conflict, no thanks. I don't want it, right? But here's something we all know. Every single one of us knows this. Conflict is inevitable. If there were only two people on the planet, there would be conflict, right? Because people come to each other with different ideas and different backgrounds and different perspectives, and they're not going to agree. You're not going to agree with everyone all the time. So the question is not, hey, you know, is there going to be conflict? Because the answer to that is yes. The question is, what kind of conflict is there going to be at my job, in my school, in my home, in my relationship, in my family, on my team, at my church, you know, on the sports team? What kind of conflict is there going to be? Is it going to be constructive or is it going to be destructive conflict. I came across a book recently that I just, just it clicks and I loved it. it it's in, it, in my mind, it just sort of puts a lot of things together. It's called The Five Dysfunctions of a Team, a guy named Patrick Lencioni. And he's mainly focusing on organizations and, and, and uh, companies. But I Googled the guy. He's a, he is a believer. He's, a, he's a, a, you know, an ardent follower of Jesus. And he He's discovered that like applying some of these biblical principles in the workplace are actually, you know, really, really helpful in terms of being able to have conducive, healthy, vibrant relationships in the workplace. Um, and one of the things that he talks about a lot is this idea of constructive conflict. And he came up with a paradigm that I find to be useful, and it's called the, the conflict continuum. Uh, some of you like visual folks, you'll just, you'll, this'll be, you'll get this, um, Basically, conflict looks like this. On one end, there's artificial harmony. This is, this is when you just don't say what's on your mind. You know, somebody says something, or your boss says something, or your friend, or your colleague, or your spouse, or somebody, and you just don't say anything because you don't want to experience conflict. And the problem with that is you are experiencing conflict. You're just experiencing it inside of yourself. And you get tumors, and you can't sleep at night, and you toss and turn, and then you start holding grudges, and then you're resentful, and then suddenly, blang, out of nowhere, you come hard charging at somebody, and you go, and they go, what happened? Well, why did you just blow up at me like that? Because you've been having artificial harmony. You've been avoiding conflict the whole time, and suddenly it explodes everywhere, right? On the other end of the spectrum is the person who's just always in conflict, right? They're contrary to be contrary. And anything you say, it's potato. No, it's a potato. It's tomato. It's tomato, right? It's eagles. It's just eagles. It's, that's what it is. It's just the eagles. So, 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 you know, this person is just always in conflict, right? And we know this is destructive. If you've ever been in this kind of a relationship or environment, it's just like, there's just, it's just, it's just always just falling apart. It's just crumbling. But if you can get to what they call, Lincioni calls the ideal conflict point. Basically, this is the point at which you say what's on your mind, you express your own thoughts and opinions and ideas and feelings with somebody, and respectfully, kindly, you know, not over here. And then, if you're able to do that with somebody, what, what you find is that it actually helps you to achieve better results. 
If you're, if you're in conflict with somebody, sometimes it's just a matter of you just don't understand them and, the, and they don't understand you. And the conflict actually helps you to understand one another better. If you're in a marriage and there's no conflict, then just pick a fight. You should get into some conflict because it will help you to grow. You don't even want to do it all the time, but it will help you to grow in your relationship with the other person because you'll, you'll start to understand that person. They'll start to understand you. You'll start to have a real relationship with one another. But we're so afraid of this that sometimes we won't even do this. But when we don't do this, we end up over here. And Jesus says this. He says, you know, if you're getting ready to, to come into church and, and pray, I'm going to paraphrase what he says, but he says, and you have somebody out there in your life that you've got some beef with, you got some ish with somebody, some, you and somebody are just kind of buttonheads. He said, go and reconcile with your brother. Go work it out. Is, is it going to create some conflict? Yes. Is it going to be awkward? Yep. Is it going to be a difficult conversation? Yes, it will. But you got to go work that out so that you can come back and have a real, fluid, open relationship with God. In fact, your relationship with other people has a profound impact on your relationship with God. And he's saying, look, I want you to reconcile some of this conflict. In order to reconcile it, you've got to address it. You've got to get out there and you've got to talk it, talk it out. Maybe it means saying, hey, I'm sorry. I'm, I messed up. Maybe it's saying, hey, you know, you, you messed up, you know, to me. And then they go, no, I didn't. And you got to work it out, right? Because here's what happens. When we, when we have this level of trust with one another, such that we can have constructive conflict, then what that leads then to is active engagement in the relationship. Active engagement. And, and what that means is that each and every one of us, whether it's in a church, whether it's in a marriage, whether it's in, in a company, an organization, a nonprofit, it means that people are involved. People are engaged. Why? Because they've been real with one another. There's an element of trust there, and so they feel safe to actually engage in the thing. And, and when you do that, then, then it's, you know, I mean, there's no limit to what can happen. But what happens is if we don't have these other elements in place, what you tend to do is withdraw. What you tend to do is shut down. What you tend to do is disengage. Now, sometimes we do that anyway. I know that one of the biggest barriers for me and my relationship with my own kids is not like a big psychological barrier. It's not like a big spiritual or emotional barrier. My biggest barrier with my kids is, is this. Because when I come home from a, from a day at, at the office, sometimes I want to disengage. Sometimes I just want to sit and go on Bleacher Report and, you know, read the latest anti-patriot propaganda and, you know, uh, and, and, you know, see what's going on on MMANews.com and, and, right, and then I'm missing out on some core relationships in my life. I'm missing out on some deep opportunities with my kids. I'm missing out on some subtle clues and cues that my kids are giving me about X, Y, or Z. I'm missing out on the, on the opportunity to impart some wisdom to them or impart some knowledge or to learn from them about you know, their own experiences, their own feelings, right? Because any organization, any family, any relationship, it requires us to actively engage. It requires us to get involved. It requires us to really focus in on the thing that we're doing so that we're completely engaged, letting go of the distractions, letting go of the whatever it is that's been plaguing us or bothering us, and focus on that relationship. Engage in that moment. When my wife and I were talking about this a few weeks ago, 
I said, you know, I, I do. I feel like, you know, I've, I'm missing some opportunities when I come. I'm missing some opportunities just by being distracted, just by being disengaged. So I took one of my sons. We went and bought a baseball mitt, and we bought a, a, a soft rubber baseball, not because it's cold outside, and so I bought a soft one so we could play in the house. And then um, we started throwing, the last few weeks, we've just been practicing throwing the baseball in the house. And we have knocked over a couple lamps, but the relationship between me and my kids is better than ever because we're more engaged. We're just engaged. We're involved with one another. We're, we're really getting close to one another. And some of you might go, well, look, even if I were engaged, the other person is disengaged. So how will it help me to be engaged? How will it help me to be engaged in my relationship? How will it help me to be engaged with my family? How will it help me to be engaged with my company? Because why should I be engaged if they're not going to be engaged? But again, what kind of house do you want to build? What's the foundation for your life? Not theirs. You can't change them. What's the foundational principles for your life? Because here's one of the foundational principles about engagement. God said this in Colossians. He says, whatever you do, whatever you do in your relationship with your job, with your spouse, at your church, with your friends, with your family, do it heartily as to the Lord and not for other people, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. He said, for you serve the Lord Christ. Your engagement with another person is a reflection of your engagement with God. Your engagement at work is a reflection of your engagement with the Lord. Your engagement in your family is a reflection of your engagement with God. Everything you do is as unto the Lord. He said, whatever it is, get involved, get committed, get engaged, go for it. Because what it is, it's a reflection of your relationship with God. And here's what happens when a group of people get engaged. When a group of people actually truly commit to one another and get engaged to one another, they start to experience real accountability. Real accountability is absolutely fundamentally key to a healthy relationship of any kind. If you've ever been in an environment where, hey, there are some rules and principles and parameters that have been set out, but nobody follows them and nobody holds anybody accountable for it. Do you know how draining that is? I mean, the, the morale just, just nosedives, right? I mean, we just go, oh, well, geez, I'm over here wanting to perform and, you know, this person's not even showing up and nobody's holding them accountable. It will just tank a team. It will tank a, a, a family if there's no accountability. It will tank a friendship if there's no accountability. It will just, it, the whole thing will go bust because we need, we actually, we're built, we're wired to need each other to help each other grow. We're re that's the way God built us. We are socially wired to need one another to help one another grow. I got an email not long ago, actually sort of around January, early January, from a friend of mine at the gym. And his email said, hey man, haven't seen you at the gym for a while. Slacking? You know, question mark? You know? And he was just being funny, but I was. And so, and, and so this little email, that was accountab accountability for me. It wasn't being judgment. It wasn't being harsh. He was like, hey, dude, I know you've got this thing. You want to try to stay healthy and, you know, but I haven't seen you. So where are you at, man? You know, so like, but that's accountability. I got another email. I get a, I've got a lot of people pouring accountability in my life. Um, I got another email from my, my kid's teacher, their favorite teacher. She's an amazing teacher. And, uh, and I take the kids to school every morning. And I got an email from her. And it was like, she said, oh, hey, hey, Brent, um, just wanted to remind you, school starts at 8.40, not 8.45. Thanks. Hope you're having a great day, right? <laughs> Accountability, you know? Last quarter, my kids were not tardy or absent one day. 
Thank you. Thank you. Um, <laughs> um, but there's account, it's because there's accountability. Sometimes we actually just need somebody in our life to help give us a nudge. To say, hey, you know what? I know you have this commitment. I know you are you know, striving for this. And as your friend, I'm going to help you out. I'm going to help hold you accountable in our job, in our relationships. In our, that's why we have life groups. That's why we have them. Because, because we grow together. The only way we grow together is if we're together. And if we are actually helping each other grow. In fact, uh, the, the proverb says this. It says, iron sharpens iron, just as one person sharpens another. This is, how we, this is how we get better. We get better by helping one another, by strengthening, by encouraging one another. In Hebrews, it says, uh, it says let us not forsake the assembling of ourselves um, because let us consider, and then it says, let us consider how we may spur one another on. Spur is kind of a strong word. I don't know if I want to be spurred on, but, but anyway, it's, it's kind of encouraging one another, right, towards love and good, and good works. That's how we grow. We have true accountability with one another, working together, helping one another. It's not judgmentalism. It's not being harsh on somebody. It's not being like, well, you didn't. You know. It's like sometimes some of us just need to have some opportunities in our life to build some accountability in our relationships so that we can grow spiritually. Because when we are experiencing trust and there's good communication and there's good conflict and constructive conflict and we're engaged with one another and we're accountable to one another, that is when we can focus on our true mission. That is when things really click. That is when things really start to happen in our lives and in our schools and in our families and in our jobs. When we're able to focus in on our true mission, when we don't have all of the distractions of grudges against other people, dysfunction against other people, you know, uh, undermining one another, we can actually focus on the core mission, the core vision of whatever that group is, whatever that you're building better, you can focus on the mission of that. In 1996, uh, there was a young gymnast, her name was Carrie Strug. Some of you will remember her story. Carrie Strug was on the U.S. Women's Olympic team. And she was uh, on this team, and this team, the U.S. Women's Olympic gym, uh, Gymnastics team, had never won a team gold medal. They had, some of them had won individual gold medals, but as a team, they had never won a gold medal. And this was their year to do it. They decided they were going to go for it, and they were going to try to win a gold medal as a team. And so they're at the Olympics, and they're actually doing really well. The Russians were really dominating. The Romanians were really good. There are a lot of good teams out there. But, but the U.S. Gymnast, uh, women's gymnastics team was doing, was doing great. And they're actually in the running to, to get the, their first gold medal that they would ever have gotten. And in the event, one of Carrie Strug's teammates fell. And she was doing her routine, and she fell. So her score got you know, a really low score. And they thought, okay, that's okay. She has another shot. And if she just does decently well on this, then they're going to win the gold. Well, she fell again. Her friend fell again. The, the teammate fell again. So then it comes on to, to Carrie Strug. Like, now you've got to, now you've got to do this. You've, you, you know, it's up to you now. So Carrie Strug goes, and she's going, going to do the, the vault, you know, where you run really fast, and you bounce, and then flip in the air, and all that. So she runs, and she does the vault. She does her routine, and she under-rotates. And if you, if you remember this from the back there, you can YouTube it. But she, like, under-rotates, and she sprains her ankle. She actually damaged her ligaments and some tendons down there. <clears throat> and you can actually see her wince. Like, ah, you know, you can feel just like, oh, man, that, that hurt, right? And she kind of 
you know, so her score is low. She kind of limps off. And she goes over to her coach. And this is, this is a powerful moment. Because she asks her coach, do, do we need for me to do it again? She's injured. She's, she's injured. She's not badly injured, but she's a little bit injured. Do we need for me to do it again? Her, go- her coach says, for us to get the gold medal, yeah, we need you to do it again. I mean, if you can, you know, we need you to do it again. And she makes this internal calculation. A lot of people didn't know this until afterwards. But she had an opportunity after this team event to compete in the individual event. She had already qualified to compete in the individual event. But if she does another run at this vault with her ankle in the condition that it's in, she's probably going to disqualify herself from the opportunity to get a personal gold medal. And so she does this little, she, you know, she calculates this in her mind, and then she says, all right, I'm going to do it. And she walks back up on to the, the, the stand, and she runs down the pad. She hits the vault, and she sticks this landing. And if you've ever watched the video, I mean, it's a powerful because she immediately wins. She immediately has to pull up her leg, and then she, like, folds. She can't even, you know, her, the, she's really damaged her ankle. And, but she gets a 9.7, and the women win their first Olympic team gold because she was willing to make a sacrifice, a personal sacrifice, for the team. She had a vision, a mission of what was required of her in order to win for the team, even though it meant she didn't get to compete on her individual uh, event after that. And there's some great video footage, and you've probably seen the pictures. They actually carry her to the gold medal stand to win the gold. Now, she didn't get the personal gold, but people all around the world just loved her because of the sacrifice that she made. This is what happens in in real, healthy, vibrant, strong relationships. We are willing to give up some of our own personal gain in order for the entire mission to be accomplished. This happens in a family. This happens in a relationship. This happens on a job. This happens in every every area of our life. When we get in environments that are healthy, where we're candid, where we can be honest with each other, when we build our relationships on foundational principles, then we can focus on the true mission. In fact, Jesus put it like this. He said, seek first the kingdom of God. Go after the mission first. And he said, all these other things will be added unto you. If you go after your own thing, you will lose that and you'll lose everything else. But if you go after God's mission, all these other things will be taken care of. They'll be given to you. And so for the next several weeks, I just want to encourage each and every one of us, let's build better lives. Let's build better relationships. Let's build better teams. Let's build better companies. Let's build better schools. Whatever you're involved with, let's build it better by, by building it on the rock. The question that I want to leave each and every one of you with today is, what is the foundation for your house? What is the foundation for your life? What is the foundation for your marriage? What is the foundation for your friendship? What is the foundation for your career? What is the foundation for your school? Because when we build on God's principles, the winds can come, the storms can come, the rain can come, the floods can come, but we will stand. Nothing can stop you when you build your house upon the rock. Now, for some of you today, the step, 
that, that the, the first step to that may just mean making a commitment to be a follower of Jesus. You may just say, hey, today I want to start this process. I have built my life on some things that are not getting me where I want to go. And some houses are collapsing around me. Some dynamics, some relationships, some families. Some, and I want, to, I want to take a shot at building my house upon the rock. Today, maybe it's just making a commitment on your connection card and saying, I want to make commitment. I want to, I want to build my house upon the, the rock of Christ's truth. Maybe that's you today. For some of you, that may mean I'm going to actually get involved in a spiritual community. I'm going to, get, I'm going to engage in a church. Go, I'll go to Next Steps and become a member of this church. Or if this isn't the place for me, I'll go find a place and I'll get engaged in a church because then I'll have accountability. I'll be able to grow. I'll be able to learn. I'll be able to develop. Maybe that's the step for you today. For some of us, it's, it's a matter of getting into a, a life group. And we go, all right, I'm going to start building some accountability in my life. I'm going to start, I'm going to start you know, sacrificing some of my own personal time to go be a part of a team and grow together. And I'm going to take that step. For some of you, it might mean spending some time in prayer or spending some time in scripture or getting some other people around you, calling up somebody, burying the hatchet with somebody that you still got some beef with. You know, all of us have a different way of, of approaching it, but all of us need to start moving a little bit closer, taking a, a, a further step towards building better lives, building better families, building better friendships, building better churches, building better teams. And so today I would just say, whatever that is for you, take the step. Because when we do that, when you do that, and I do that, and when we do that collectively, nothing can stop us. Nothing can stop you when you build your house upon the rock. Let me pray for us. Father, we come before you today. We thank you for your word. It's challenging to us. It, it, um, it's convicting in some ways. But God, it's so empowering and liberating. God, I pray that each and every one of us here today would find ways to grow in you, to build better friendships by the power of your spirit, to build better families, better, better work environments, better school environments, better job environments, by building our lives on the core foundational principles of your truth and of your word, I pray that over the next several weeks, we'll just sink into what you have for us. And it'll begin to strengthen our lives and empower us, God, to live the lives that we're called to live. Not only for us, not only that we have a strong house, but that our house might be a safe place for others to come in and find you and experience you and find your peace and your mercy and your love. God, help us to be a source of strength, not just here in this community, but around the world. Give us your power, give us your strength, and let us bring honor and glory to you. In Christ's name, amen.